So I've never been over to the law school before. I've been to the business school, and it's a lot of fun to come over here and, and see the building. And it has a very um, rich history. I actually was born in Massachusetts, and um, I went to college at the University of, of Massachusetts, and then I went to medical school at Penn, and I took time off from my surgical training and got a Ph.D. in the area of, of immunology. But, you know, during um, medical school, and actually when I was young, um, I became interested in, in transplantation. And, and, and arguably, transplantation, and, and in de last December we just celebrated the 60th, 6-0 anniversary of the first successful kidney transplant, which was done in Boston um, in 1954. And um, arguably, advances in transplantation um, are considered to be some of the greatest advances <clears throat> in medicine in the last half of the last century. In fact, organ transplantation has become so successful that we oftentimes um, joke, argue about the fact that um, we're victims of our own success because there's now quite a disparity between the number of people that, that want this therapy relative to the number of organs that are available. And so uh, transplantation is an absolutely fun discipline because from the surgical standpoint, it's highly technical, and if, you're, if you like technical surgeries, it's, it's very demanding. But there's also a lot of um, interesting immunology, medicine, and then ethical aspects of the field that are involved. And, you know, hardly a day goes by when we aren't really dealing with some ethically related decision um, related to um, organ allocation or who should be listed and who should be a candidate and so forth. So, you know, I hope in the next um, couple of hours you get a flavor for uh, transplantation in the system. And um, I'm happy to interrupt the flow with, with questions. So don't, don't stand on ceremony. Right, so, so how many of you had an opportunity to read those chapters by Dr. Childress? Did you read those in preparation for this? So, you know, <clears throat> Dr. Childress is truly one of the, the nation's experts in um, organ uh, transplantation from um, an ethical, um, you know, perspective. And we're very fortunate to have him at the University of, of Virginia. And I've given a number of courses with him and with uh, Richard Bonney, um, related to transplantation. So a lot of the slides that I'm going to show you are um, slides that I've <clears throat> modified a bit, but some of them are Jim's original slides, and I don't know if he's going to be uh, teaching any sections of the course. So he, he didn't come before me, so if he shows those slides afterwards, you need to know that they some of them were borrowed from him. So. All right. Well, uh, let's see. So... Um, Organ transplantation, as I mentioned, is really considered to be a highly successful uh, therapy. And um, as noted, it, the, the achievements of the last 50 years really represent some of the greatest advances in, in healthcare. And so, um, oops, I'll go backwards. Um, but the problem, of course, is that the expectations for success are so high that what was formerly um, a kind of a rare success back when I first started my training in the 1980s is now entirely different, such that we're, we're really the most highly regulated area of medicine today through um, health and human services. And, 
and the uh, results of transplantation in terms of patient and graft survival are in the public domain. You can go online tonight or during this lecture and go to www.unos.org and you can look at how many transplants we did at UVA last year and what our patient and our graft survival is. And so the public has a lot of access to these results. You know, if you, <clears throat> if you look at, like, for example, the going to a surgeon if you have a hernia, I mean, no, nobody really keeps track of whether the patients had a recurrence or not, um, whether there were any mishaps, what their wound infection rates were, and so forth. But in, in distinction to that, I mean, we're regulated very highly, and it's somewhat predicted that we'll, uh, other areas will become as regulated as, as we are. Uh, but right now, that isn't quite the case. So uh, it is expensive therapy, but it's dramatic, and it's life-saving. <clears throat> now, now, here's kind of where the rubber meets the road, and you can get this data by going on that website, unos.org. As of October 22nd, 2013, there were 120,206 people that were waiting for a variety of different transplants. The majority of these are, are kidney patients. <clears throat> In 2012, though, there were 30,000 um, transplants done, and there were um, 14,000 donors in the United States, about 8,000 deceased donors, and around 6,000 living donors. And the number of patients that are going on the list continues to increase, and the number of donors stays relatively stagnant. So the waiting times increase. And as Gil mentioned, you know, it's, it's estimated that there are 18 people in the United States who die every day uh, waiting for an organ transplant. So what that means is that they've been evaluated, they're on the list, they haven't gotten an organ transplant, and they die while they're actively waiting for a transplant. So, you know, this represents a, a major um, healthcare problem because these people, um, you know, could benefit by, by transplantation. And um, as noted, I mean, we're victims of our own success. But um, to, to really understand the system, though, <clears throat> and how organs are, are allocated, we need to actually talk about um, the playing field. And so I, I want to spend at least a minute or so or a few minutes talking about um, governance of organ transplantation. And so, uh, how many of you are familiar with this already? Because if I'm repeating something that you've heard about already, okay. Mm -hmm. Okay, so <clears throat> wind the clock back to the mid, um, late 1960s, and, and Medicare was, was recently passed by the Johnson administration, um, and there were big fights, um, you know, related to that. But the environment um, in the late 60s, early 70s, was that, you know, the government is um, going to be a provider of uh, individuals that, for individuals that have poor access to, to health care. And <clears throat> there was uh, legislation that was passed in 1973, but was worked on for a number of years prior to 1973, called the, the End-Stage Renal Disease Act of 1973. And, <clears throat> and, and basically, um, what, what had happened in the 1960s is transplantation the first transplant was in 54. There were efforts over the next 10 years to improve the results of transplantation. It looked like a promising therapy. But <clears throat> it really wasn't going anywhere, and, and most hospitals were just funding uh, transplantation by virtue of their generosity, and there was no funding stream for, for transplantation. And there was the growth of the need for dialysis 
but there was um, inequities in access to dialysis in the United States. Dialysis is the therapy where people get their blood washed three times a week to stay alive because their kidneys don't function. So there was kind of a perfect storm that took place in the early 1970s because um, there were pockets of the country that had good um, dialysis networks that were evolving in other areas that had basically no access to dialysis. And as often, ha ha as often occurs, there was um, a relative of a powerful uh, legislator in Washington who had uh, end-stage kidney disease and he came to learn of the difficulties associated with her uh, getting access to dialysis because individual hospitals would have committees that would, you know, say yay or nay for a given person. And it wasn't really a right for everybody. I mean, you, you basically had to be able to afford it, and there weren't enough dialysis beds, and so there was this triaging of who gets dialysis and who doesn't. And at the same time, transplantation uh, was begun to be looked at as a uh, um, an alternative to dialysis therapy that had, you know, some real promise. And so a lot of um, back and forth went on, and the history is very interesting, but it ended up with the passage of the End-Stage Renal Disease Act in, of 1973. And that piece of legislation called for uh, Medicare to pick up the costs for any individual in the United States that had end-stage renal disease. In addition, it also provided funding for... Um, the support of transplantation, at that point just of kidneys. So all of a sudden the hospitals um, and other groups of physicians and networks of doctors realized that, you know, this was uh, really a great golden egg opportunity for um, helping people but at the same time growing um, an area of medicine that had a need but was also potentially profitable. And so um, if it weren't for the End-Stage Renal Disease Act of 1973, we probably wouldn't even be here today talking about transplantation of all these other organs because that really set the stage for the demonstration that um, you know, transplantation of an organ uh, could be carried out uh, successfully and that patients um, you know, could benefit by the therapy. And at the time that that uh, was, uh, legislation was passed in 1973, it was predicted that the program eventually would cost about $750 million. So how much do you think the federal government spent on the end stage renal, care of end-stage renal disease patients in 2014? Take a guess. If you're from California, take a guess. Now, it's between 25 and $30 billion. And there's over 400,000 people in the United States that are on dialysis. And um, I showed you the numbers for the, the number of transplants. And it's much more cost-effective to actually transplant somebody than to keep them on dialysis because it costs about seventy or $80,000 a year to keep somebody on dialysis. It probably costs about $120,000 to $150,000 to transplant somebody, but the transplant lasts for a long time. So even if you add in the cost of the medicines, the break-even point is about after two years after the uh, transplant. So if you get a kidney transplant and it lasts uh, for two years or more, then you've actually saved the federal government money relative to what it would cost to support that person on dialysis. So it's a very expensive program today, um, and there are hundreds of thousands of people that get dialysis. And, you know, one of the issues that's, that's facing us today is, you know, well, if you have, um, you know, metastatic lung cancer, 
and you have a life expectancy of four to six months and you develop kidney failure, you can be dialyzed. We don't, there's no restriction on who can be dialyzed and who can't be dialyzed in the United States, as opposed to the United Kingdom, which they do have restrictions. But the law, as it's written, um, states that anybody who has um, renal failure, basically their care would be paid for by, um, through Medicare. Even if they don't qualify for Medicare on the basis of whether you worked or not, that's not really relevant. It's basically if you have kidney failure, you're going to get your care paid for. So it's pretty, uh, a pretty amazing program. And um, the transplantation of other organs, heart transplant, liver transplant, and so forth, those evolved in a similar way where there were successes that were demonstrated and then there were petitions that were made with the, uh, you know, the Center for Medicare Services to establish guidelines for coverage. And so now all the major organs, heart, lung, kidney, liver, pancreas, are paid for um, if you meet certain qualifications through, through Medicare. Insurance companies, private insurance companies also pay for it. So it's, um, but if it wasn't, you know, for the initial um, act in 1973, we probably wouldn't be having this big successful enterprise. Well, with the passage of the legislation and more transplants that were done in the 1970s, uh, the field grew. And it, it also became apparent in the late 70s and the early 1980s that there were pockets of success in the United States for transplantation, and there were other areas where large, large numbers of people were remaining on dialysis, but they didn't have access to transplantation. So the National Organ Transplant Act of 1984 was passed based on a similar uh, circumstance to what happened in 1973, where uh, people in the government, uh, you know, the House of Representatives, the Senate, recognize that there were inequities in access to care. And oftentimes, if you follow legislation carefully, that often drives, um, you know, the movement forward of, of legislation. And it's a popular um, legislation because um, it is important for patients. It's, you know, for the good of, of humanity. But it also makes the legislators look good if they're passing this type of of legislation, and especially if they're interested in getting reelected, you know they want to be able to demonstrate that they've passed, you know, good legislation. So um, Al Gore actually was instrumental in um, moving that National Organ Transplant Act of, of 1984 forward, and that act actually called for the establishment of a national um, oversight of organ transplant activity in the United States. And that act charged Health and Human Services to oversee transplant activity in the United States. And <clears throat> this is actually done by contract. And so the headquarters of this organization called UNOS is located in Richmond. And UNOS originally was this organization called SEOP, Southeastern Organ Procurement Foundation, which was sort of a voluntary organization of um, centers in the southeast that wanted to organize themselves in an effort to um, provide some uh, sharing and infrastructure for uh, transplantation. And now we've morphed into uh, something quite different. Um, and by 1987, UNOS was uh, 
overseeing all of transplant activity in the United States. And UNOS is a private organization that contracts with Health and Human Services to oversee transplant activity in the United States. And every two years, that contract is renewed with Health and Human Services. And as is typical for uh, contract renewals, there's an increasing amount of deliverables that HHS requires in the renewal of the contract. Now, UNOS, how much money do you think? Well, there's 400,000 people on dialysis. There's 120,000 people waiting for transplantation. And um, there were 30,000 some odd transplants in the United States. There's about 270 or so kidney transplant centers, maybe 100 or so heart transplant centers. How much money do you think UNOS gets from HHS to oversee and run transplantation in the United States? Sounds like it should be big budget, right? Well, they recently got an increase this year because things were getting kind of tough. But <clears throat> for the last uh, 10 or so years, I think they got about $2 million a year from Health and Human Services to run transplantation in the United States. All the rest of the fees that go to support UNOS actually come from the transplant centers and the organ procurement organizations. And um, I, I might use this blackboard to just... Uh, draw a little bit for you. So, so you know, UNOS, um, you know, divides the United States into 11 regions. And within those 11 regions are 57 what we call uh, donor service areas. And then there are probably 270 transplant centers. And so, as an example, um, the University of Virginia is one of four transplant centers within LifeNet. So, LifeNet is the name of the organ procurement organization that is responsible for overseeing um, organ procurement within uh, the state of Virginia, except for a small area in northern Virginia that belongs to the Washington uh, OPO. So um, UVA is uh, one of four transplant centers within the LifeNet OPO, and the LifeNet OPO is one of 57 OPOs divided up geographically into these donor service areas. And then there are 11 regions that are relevant for the purposes of, of organ sharing. And all of this is overseen by um, Health and Human Services, and um, the contract is renewed every uh, two years with increasing deliverables so that um, you know, the rules of, of, of transplantation and, and what's required kind of just continues to grow and grow to the point where we're, we're the most highly regulated area of, of medicine today. So to, to reiterate, um, you know, UNOS is a private organization, not-for-profit, and um, we have to answer to the Secretary of Health and Human Services. Anybody have any questions about that organization?
So why, why is all this relevant? Well, it's relevant because um, there are rules that govern uh, the distribution of organs, and when people feel that they're not distributed fairly, we end up getting to a situation where there are um, discussions about um, rule changes. And so, um, you know, depending on the, you know, the environment in medicine and sort of the bioethical aspects of where we're at as a country in terms of our thinking, um, you know, it kind of drives uh, decision-making. You know, before the first uh, kidney transplant that was, was done in 1954, uh, the hospitals were very concerned about taking somebody to the operating room who was otherwise healthy and taking an organ from them. And so they actually took this, the, uh, the Peter Ben Brigham Hospital, which was where this was done, they took this to the Massachusetts Supreme Court to get um, a ruling and permission to actually take somebody to the operating room who was otherwise healthy so we could take his kidney out and give it to his brother. And, um, you know, subsequent to that, there were um, discussions about um, when can you take somebody to the operating room, how do you define uh, brain death, um, how do you take organs from somebody that isn't legally dead. And so all of these issues, uh, you know, have become quite um, important in terms of the bioethical aspects of, of health care and the law um, is, is important because it sets up a framework for um, what's considered to be okay and what isn't okay to do. I don't know, maybe you want to comment a little bit about that? Or? No, I, I think that the, um, the fact that we need a structure, a legal structure is really what we're all talking about because you have the possibility. So you, but now you, you don't ask what is possible, but rather what is permissible. And then defining the permissible ways to improve one's health uh, using all those uh, super sensitive uh, scenarios is exactly where the law should come in. Because doctors, we say yesterday, when there is uncertainty, doctors will not act. So you need to provide them tranquility that it's an okay, they're acting in an okay environment. Uh, just, just going back to just the last question, the reason they went with this 57, with this, why didn't they just follow the state-by-state OPO structure? Why do they do cross-state, interstate? Because, you see, if you have all those scarcities or transportation everything, you would say that a community approach which says, mm, in, in Minnesota, let's deal with Minnesota. In Virginia, it's easier to, to, to move forward. Why did they have this none? I think it was based um, on population. Population size. All right. And, um, of course, this is now uh, being rediscussed and reexamined because there are areas of the country where the waiting time to get a liver transplant is shorter, um, such as in Kansas, uh, relative to Boston and New York City, where there's a higher number of people that have hepatitis C, that have liver failure, that are waiting for transplants. And so <clears throat> as these inequities, you know, continue to evolve, depending on uh, diseases and number of organs available, there's a lot of discussion about whether to change the allocation in an effort to uh, basically take care of um, the areas of the country that have a higher number of patients with a, a given end-stage disease. Of course, if you're a resident of Kansas and, you know, you don't want organs being procured and necessarily sent to New York City, you know, your whole idea is that, well, you know, if I'm going to donate my organs, I'd prefer them to stay in Kansas. 
and that's one one potential argument. The counter argument to that, well, is that you know organs are really a, a national resource, and that it shouldn't matter whether your organ stays local or not. But the reality is that there is some um, interplay. It's sort of rem reminiscent of the state versus federal, um, you know, jurisdiction issues that permeate our laws under a number of different levels. And so we really argue about whether this is, you know, should be kept locally or not. And, you know, when we have somebody that, that dies in Virginia waiting for a transplant because we had to send the organ to somebody in Tennessee, it kind of is, uh, it's irksome. But this is a, it's a related question that we'll um, address as we go forward. Now, one thing I do want to say about the uh, National Organ Transplant Act of 1984 is that, um, you know, to develop this, there was a task force on organ transplantation that um, <clears throat> included people like Jim Childress and you know, put forth a lot of ideas as to what would be required to create an equitable system in the United States. It created the organ procurement organizations, those 57 different uh, donor service areas, and it also created the organ procurement and transplantation network. It also banned the sale of organs in the United States, and, and this has become a very important part of that uh, legislation because as the number of uh, people waiting for transplants has increased, there has been a constant discussion about ways of um, stimulating um, organ donation. And in other parts of the world, um, there are uh, situations where you can um, go to Iran, for example, and basically get a kidney and just pay for the transplant and, you know, the hospital, you know, pays the donor. Um, so you can buy an organ in various parts of the world, but that's not considered legal in the United States. So before uh, the National Organ Transplant Act and the OPTN was developed, the, the dispositional uh, authority over the donated organs was largely vested in the local procurement organization and the local transplant teams. But the paradigm shift took place with the formation of the OPTN and the movement from uh, so-called voluntary sharing to formal uh, allocation. So from a legal standpoint, that was very, very um, seminal. And uh, the recommendation of the task force really uh, assumed a, a change in the philosophical uh, perspective on, on organs. And it basically um, took the position that donated organs were a public or a national resource and that professionals such as myself and others involved in the field are merely trustees or stewards of these donated organs for the community. So that, that was a you know, a big change because it was no longer like if I had a, a donor at my hospital, um, could I be entitled to have one or both kidneys for my own patients? No, there was a national or a regional or a local, regional, and then national list established, and the organs would be allocated equitably on the basis of waiting time without consideration for the fact that the organ was procured at my hospital so that I could then have an advantage. And this um, basically uh, was something that eventually was widely accepted, but at the time it was a big change because uh, people sort of viewed the growth of uh, their local transplant programs uh, on the basis of um, their hard work to organize locally and <clears throat> procure organs. And so there was a lot of discussion at the time. 
30 some odd years ago. So the, the implications were that if the donated organs belong to the public, then the uh, criteria for patient selection should be um, made public, it should be transparent, it should be fair, and it should be established with uh, input from the public. And so one of the unique things about the uh, transplant community is that um, UNOS has um, members on their committees and their board and so forth that are not just physicians. They represent um, members of the community, potential donors, potential recipients. It's not necessarily uh, the case that they're transplant professionals. There are religious uh, members um, members of the re religious communities that are, you know, voluntary members of, of these boards. So, so the criteria um, uh, became public and transparent, and <clears throat> it's evolved to the point where, you know, all this is available now through the, through the Internet. And, um, you know, the expertise of, of transplant professionals um, has come in at a number of different levels, but it's important to note that we deliberate um, not only amongst ourselves but with the public and that we publicly justify uh, the policies and um, that the presumption is that the public's willingness to donate is in part at least perceived on the fairness of the allocation system. And so when you read the chapters, um, you understand that some of the uh, recent discussions back in the mid-2000s about whether paid donation was reasonable or whether to change how we approach consent were reviewed in the context of what that would do to the public's willingness to continue to donate. And I think some of the fear, a lot of the fear that we have in the United States with regard to organ donation um, <clears throat> and changing the laws um, revolve around our concern that any change that could potentially impact an individual or a group of individuals' willingness to donate should be avoided. So that's a, I think that's an important concept, but it's one that, that, that does change. And, you know, as we, uh, you know, in life everybody changes the more experienced you are. And, you know, over the years I've seen so many people that have um, wanted transplants that haven't been able to get them. And, um, there's not enough organs to go around. And so, you know, I, I think when I was younger, I had a very hard line toward um, the rules with regard to compensation for, um, you know, donors. And you know, I'd have to say that my, my view on this is, is softened um, as you uh, see this system change because, you know, the, the NOTA basically prevents any type of uh, financial remuneration for the donor. So, you know, if you have somebody who um, is going to miss work or has children that um, need to be watched while they're uh, in the hospital for the donation or they're recovering, I mean, the National Organ Transplant Act specifically prohibits any type of um, uh, compensation, you know, to the donor related to the donation process. So. It's very strict in the United States, and I think that people are concerned if we were to loosen up that regulation at all that we'd end up being on the slippery slope where you may end up um, in a situation where you're going to pay somebody twenty or 50000 for 
for one of their kidneys. And I'm not sure that's the case. You know, you can't you can't compensate somebody from time off from work. You can't really compensate them for travel. You can't compensate them for their hotel expenses if they travel four hours and you know stay in the hotel for a day or two after the donation. It's very very uh, challenging. Yet in other parts of the world, um, we have another extreme, and um, you know obviously this is something that continues to be debated. Uh, so. So try to solve this difficulty. Clearly, the, the black donor will sustain financial hardship for his altruistic um, act. Solve it. How would you solve it? Jeff, how would you solve that? Well, maybe to allow financial incentives that, you know, help pay back costs that would be incurred but for the donation, but maybe not go. Maybe no, no, that's, that's, that, no, that's what you pay for. Give me the mechanism. Remember, this class is about regulation, making it happen. Well, how would you feel? How would you, how would you design policy that is still permissible with a no-no? Because there is a way. What's the major problem with this? That you're afraid the patients we paid, or the donors we paid. But there's a way to control that. If it, just for example, if you if you create a pricing list, quote unquote, where the CMS slash the Department of Health slash the local Medicaid doesn't matter, create a fixed price for days out of job, child issues, everything, and there will be a fixed list, which is not negotiable. It's a fixed price pay for that. Are, you, are we avoiding that? The answer is yes, because money is not going for the hospital or for the recipient. It's where the governmental body, be it whoever you want, is paying for those costs. So then the fear of buying organs goes away, because you're actually reimbursing real costs. Right, so they, <clears throat> the, what's been discussed is exactly that, in the sense that right now, we know that there are some situations where people are getting transplants from um, individuals that are friends or a distant cousin. But, you know, my job is to basically ask the donor and the recipient, okay, well, you know, you match up, you're a good candidate and so forth. <clears throat> is the donor receiving anything um, financial or material for the, dona the donation? And then they answer no. So I'm not going to put them through a lie detector test. I take that at face value. But I'm sure, I think I've done more than 3,000 kidney transplants in my life. I know that it, <clears throat> sometimes I have transplanted uh, people that have had a distant cousin. You know, and um, really, when I... Really distant. Yeah. And really when, I was a, when I was a fellow at Minnesota, there was a, one of the Saudi sheiks came who was third in line to the throne. And, you know, he, they brought a few people with them that were tested and you know they basically got a kidney um, and, it, and it happens and you know the problem is <clears throat> if it's not regulated then we really have no control of it and then it really does have the potential to be um, abusive because um, in a system that isn't regulated you could see where you could um, 
you know, basically pay the highest amount uh, for the best kidney, and people that have the lowest amount of resources may be incented the most to put themselves at risk. And even like a, like a single mother who has, um, you know, three kids who may be um, financially strapped, I mean, that wouldn't be a very good situation to put that mother at risk because who would take care of the children? And so you can see there's a lot of aspects of this, but if we were to um, take a different approach to this and try to create a, a regulated system that had uh, strong rules for um, inclusion, I, I think it would, um, it would help a lot. But I guess the next question, though, related to that is, like, how, how to actually do this mechanistically within the law because um, getting this type of law passed is very complicated. I'll give you an example. You know, it's gonna, this is going to sound unbelievable to you, but the federal government until about two or three years ago only paid for the medicines to prevent rejection of the organ for one year. There was legislation that was passed a few years ago that then uh, permitted the federal government to pay for the anti-rejection medicines for up to three years after the transplant. If you graph the, um, if you graph graft survival after transplant, so this is survival and this is time, the graft survival sort of putters along until about 36 months and then it goes like this. And but yet, it's so complicated to get this legislation passed in Washington because if we do it for transplant, then we're going to have to do it for this one, and we're going to have to do it for that one and that one, that it becomes this giant argument. And nobody, the lobbyists that the American Society of Transplant Surgeons and the American Society of Transplantation have hired, they can't figure out how to negotiate Washington to get this legislation passed. So how would we pass... How would we figure out how to pass that legislation? It seems simple enough, but it, it requires um, sort of, I guess, a perfect storm to figure out, you know, what, what it is that would allow this to, to move forward. 